Perhaps the Lord Jesus will return for us, his bride, the church, even yet before the hour is complete. We would welcome that, so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Genesis 37 this morning, Genesis 37 in your copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. I'd like to begin by saying a word about the authorship of the book of Genesis. We've spent a number of months now working our way through Genesis. But one of the major attacks on the Bible over the last 300 years has been directed against Moses' authorship of the book of Genesis for critics question how Moses could write of these things when he did not know of these things. For example, how did Moses know of the truth of the divine creation account in the early chapters of Genesis or the antediluvian civilizations of men? That's the, those that lived before the flood. And, and I would respond in this way. That is not a difficult question to answer. God revealed the truth of divine creation and mankind's history, early history, and Moses wrote it down as directed by God. That is consistent with the Bible's teaching about the divine authorship of the scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1 verse 21 tells us that holy men of God, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you see a high view of the inspiration of the Holy Scripture answers that question for us. God gave the book of Genesis to Moses to author it. Furthermore, and humanly speaking, then we might answer the critics or the questions in that Moses would have learned the history of the Hebrew people at his mother's knee as she recounted the the early events that we have studied in these past many months. And then, follow this, Moses, as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, living in the palace, would have learned the history of the Egyptian people for the hundreds of years that preceded Moses. So then, at the intersection of the Hebrews' history and the Egyptians' history, is a man named Joseph, living hundreds of years before Moses, and yet Moses, through divine revelation and the human information, penned these chapters as we pick up in Genesis chapter 37. But Moses committed one quarter of the book of Genesis to the life of Joseph. And that's remarkable to me because the sheer volume of information that is before us now about the life of Joseph suggests a great significance that cannot be ignored. And so for the next many weeks as we study the life of Joseph from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, I I prepared a series within a series, if you will, in the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis, a series we will call Joseph and the Hand of of God, Joseph and the hand of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? God in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death, burial, his resurrection, and his soon return for his church, his bride, to catch us up and away. Lord, we look forward to that event. But in the meantime, Lord, it's our desire to, to be faithful in following after you. Lord, this morning we begin a new portion of the book of Genesis recording the life of of Joseph. I pray, God, that your spirit will illumine the scripture to us so that we might understand what we read. I pray that your spirit might convict us, teach us, and change us because of our study. And Lord, in it all, may we not just see men, 
like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, like Moses, or now Joseph, but we might see you and your sovereign hand, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 37, follow as I begin reading in verse number one. Now Jacob, that's Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or now Israel, dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob, or Israel. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. We are introduced here to Joseph as an adolescent, as a teenager, and as comes with the territory for teenagers, Joseph found himself away from home with his peers. In this case, he was in the company of his half-brothers, the sons of Jacob's other wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, the maids of Rachel and Leah. Specifically, Joseph here is with Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher, and they're doing their chores, if you will. They are tending their father's flocks. Something bad took place while they were out with the flocks that motivated Joseph to report to his father in verse number two. Now, we don't know what happened. Perhaps Joseph's brothers here behaved rudely, or perhaps they committed a crime. I would tend to think of the latter because of the immorality and brutality that they committed back in chapter 34 and because of the wicked conspiracy that they will commit later in this very chapter. But whatever the case, whatever bad thing happened, Joseph gave his father the report in verse number two. And that reminds me of an incident from my childhood in which I wanted some candy from a grocery store. But my mother wouldn't buy me the candy from the grocery store for two reasons. She claimed, first, she claimed that it was a waste of money. Secondly, she argued that the sugar would kill me. And so I had no recourse but to steal the candy, you see. Later that day, I proceeded to secretly eat that stolen candy in the garage of, of our home. And uh, don't judge me. It's, it's not like I was smoking behind the garage. I was eating candy in the garage, right? It's, this is a small offense. But my sister, my only sister, Julie, told my mom. Now, what kind of sister does that, right? <laughs> I would no longer be her friend if she wasn't my only sister, and we were homeschooled at the time, so I had no one else, right? But she gave a bad report to my mother about my eating the stolen candy in the garage. In Genesis 37, Joseph told his father about the matter. And I call this, number one, Joseph's principled decision. His principled decision. Now, some might think that Joseph was a spoiled nuisance, a young tattletale who always went running to his father to squeal on his brothers, and that may have been the case. However, as we read the whole of Joseph's biography in the coming weeks, we will come to understand that Joseph was principled in his decisions to live with, his, with integrity. This was his MO, his mode of operation, and many times over again, we will find Joseph deciding to do what is right, even when it costs him dearly. I believe that Joseph was a young man of character and courage, and for that reason, Joseph decided to tell his father about the matter, the bad report. Look at verse number three. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, Jacob, Israel, the, the, the names are used interchangeably here. 
Verse number three, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he, that is Israel, Jacob, Israel, made Joseph a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and would not speak peaceably to him. Because of Jacob or Israel's special love for Joseph, as the son of his favorite wife, Rachel, and as the son of his old age, Joseph, I'm sorry, Israel gave Joseph a coat of many colors. Number two, Joseph's colorful dress. And never mind if the, the, the coat was attractive or not, never mind if it was expensive or not, which it would have been because colored dyes in the ancient world were very expensive. But this marked out Joseph as the one to whom Israel, Jacob or Israel, intended to bequeath rulership and ownership of the people and property under Israel's care. In Israel's mind, Joseph was the son most eligible for this honor. And of course, the meaning of that colorful coat was not lost on his brothers. They hated Joseph because of it. And so in verses 1 and 2, if a bad report wasn't enough, verses 1 and 2, now it's Israel's gift of a special coat. If that's not enough in verses 3 and 4, there's a third reason why Joseph's brothers would despise him, and that's number 3, Joseph's spectacular dreams. His spectacular dreams. Look at verse number 5. Genesis 37, verse number 5 Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There were, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves um, stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his fathers rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Joseph dreamed two spectacular dreams. In the first dream, it was a harvest field and the sheaves standing in orderly rows representing the sons of Jacob or Israel. And in his dream, those sheaves bowed down to his sheave. In the second dream, it was the sun, the moon, the stars that bowed down, the 11 stars that bowed down to him. And because the dreams were not for him alone, Joseph shared those dreams. He was really compelled or duty-bound to report those dreams and tell them to his family. And of course, the meaning of those dreams was not lost on his father or brothers. They needed no interpretation. They understood the point. Someday, Joseph's family would bow down to Joseph. But needless to say, Joseph's brothers were enraged again. Follow, in fact, follow the statements in verse number four. Look there, verse four. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now in verse number five, look, verse five, they hated him even more. Verse number eight, look there. They hated him even more. Look at verse 11. They envied him. Is there any question at this point about the hostility that existed within this family? Israel, Jacob, Israel loved Joseph in a special way way as a point of favoritism and yet the brothers hated Joseph and were envious of Joseph and 
things are not healthy in this home. Verse number 12, then his brothers went to feed their flocks, father's flocks in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he sent, said to him, here am I. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. It's probable that this was a common practice, that Jacob or Israel wanted Joseph to report back regarding his brothers. Earlier in the text, Joseph reported back with a bad report about what they had done. Here now, Jacob or Israel is hoping that Joseph will report back with a good report of what's happening. Verse number 15. Now a certain man, I'm sorry, verse number 14, I guess. Then he said, please go and see it as well with your brothers and well with the flocks. Bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and went to Shechem. Now a certain man, verse 15, found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. So the man said, they have departed from here, for I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. This is number four, Joseph's imminent danger. His imminent danger. Joseph was dispatched on a goodwill mission. He was to find his brothers who were away from home with the flock. He was to check on their well-being. Perhaps he was to bring them supplies like David did in 1 Samuel 17 for his brothers who were at war. Joseph was then to report back to, to Israel, his father. And so Joseph traveled to, from Hebron, meaning fellowship, to Shechem, the place of the immorality and the massacre of chapter 34. But, but then on to Dotham, it means two wells, a place to water the flock. And Joseph found his brothers there in Dothan in verse 17. But Joseph found himself in danger in verse number 18. And I can almost imagine Joseph drawing near and, and, and shouting, Shalom, my brothers. Hello there. Peace to you. It's good to see you. How you've been? But verses 19 and 20 tells us of their response. Then they said to one another, look, the dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him, cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. So Joseph's in danger here. He doesn't even know it. But as this conspiracy is taking place among the brothers, Reuben comes to Joseph's defense, verse 21. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father, was Reuben's plan. And in, in one sense, Reuben was very courageous and creative in his courage. But in another sense, Reuben was a, a coward. He didn't want Joseph to be killed but he couldn't stand up for Joseph against the rest, so he suggested this idea that would allow him to return at a later time and rescue Joseph, verse 23. And it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, 
Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming down from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry them down to Egypt. They were traitors. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened... Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph was thrown into a pit, verse 24. He was left for dead. It was as if he was thrown away or disposed. I'm going to call this Joseph's sinister disposal. But two of the brothers were uncomfortable with killing Joseph. We know Reuben hoped to return at some point and rescue him. That was in verse 22. And now we know in verse 26 that Judah didn't want him to be left for dead, so he suggested that they sell him to those traveling by. Of course, things got a little complicated, as they often do when these types of plans take shape after they sold Joseph because Reuben missed the memo that they sold Joseph, and Reuben then couldn't find Joseph in the pit to rescue him. Look at verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? That's insulting. Of course it is. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob, Israel, tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. At this point, for all we know, number six, Joseph's final disappearance. Joseph's final disappearance. And beginning with Reuben's surprise at Joseph's disappearance in verse 29, to Jacob's grief that Joseph was gone in verse 34, to the Midianites' resale of Joseph in Egypt, for all we know at this point, Joseph will never be heard of again. And at this point in the narrative, we would file a a missing persons report. And even if Joseph wasn't dead, His disappearance into Egypt puts him so far off the radar that there is little or no expectation to ever see Joseph again. Genesis 37. Now, we of course know that there is so much more to Joseph's story. And the the chapters that follow, we'll study in the weeks to follow. And most of us know the rest of the story. But for now... What conclusions do we make this morning? What do we take away from chapter 37 this morning? Um, Many will claim that Joseph is a type of Christ. Now, 
Allow me to take a bit of an aside, a bit of a detour here, and, and comment on the matter of ty typology. We must be careful. We need to reserve typology to those people and places that are specifically named as such in the New Testaments. For example, Jesus gave us a type in John chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus would be raised up on a cross that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so very clearly the event of Moses raising a bronze snake on a pole in Numbers 21 was a type of Christ. Those who looked in faith would live from the deadly snake bites there in the camp. And so also Jesus being raised on a cross, those who would look can live if they trust in, in Christ. And so the New Testament teaches us that that is a type. And so we can't always claim a type of different pictures that we see in the, the Old Testament. However, at times, to a lesser degree, there are parallels that we might find between places and people in the Old Testament and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so while not specifically identified or declared to be a type, there are parallels that we can we can observe here from the life of Joseph um, that will con consistently and repeatedly surface in our study in the coming weeks. And, and so I want to give you just a few comparisons. These are not in your notes, but you might just consider these parallels or these similarities, these illustrations between Joseph and Christ. First, both were firstborn. Joseph born to Rachel, Jesus born to Mary. Okay, that's a little coincidental or trivial. How about this? Both were loved by their fathers. Joseph, Genesis 37, Jesus, of course, through the Gospels. Both were prophesied to be rulers. You see the scripture references there. Both had brothers who were jealous of them and did not believe them. That's interesting. How about another one? Like Joseph, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. How about this? Both were sold for silver to Gentiles. Joseph by his brothers. Jesus, of course, by Judas. Here's one. Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph. Pilate wanted to rescue Jesus. Both Reuben and Pilate were convinced of the injustice being committed, but both were complicit in the matter by their fear and weakness. How about this? Both Joseph and Jesus went down to Egypt. Now, these are trivial. These are curious similarities or parallels that we might observe between Joseph and Jesus. These are intriguing, and yet there is one parallel that I, I want us to recognize early in our study of the life, the biography of Joseph, for it's a, it's a summary of, and it's a conclusion of, the life of Joseph. And it is the hand of God. The hand of God. At the end of these Joseph narratives, at the end of the book of Genesis, these chapters, many years later, Joseph was reunited with his brothers because he traveled to Egypt. They traveled to Egypt for famine relief. We'll, we'll get to that account. And Joseph makes the profound statement about what we've just read this morning in Genesis 37. And this is what J Joseph tells his brothers at the end. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph recognized the hand of God had ordained his suffering for a purpose. And Joseph accepted and embraced the sovereignty of God and God's hand in his life. And so I'm going to call it this, number seven in your notes, Joseph's Christ-like disposition. You say, okay, but how? In, in what way? If we're making parallels, if we're finding similarities between Joseph and Jesus Christ, in what way was this a Christ-like disposition? Jesus also suffered betrayal and injustice and suffering as part of God's purpose. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, was taken by lawless hands. He was crucified. He was put to death. What was Jesus' disposition regarding the injustice against him, regarding the betrayal and suffering against him? Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus purposed to accept and embrace and fulfill God's will because, you see, Jesus didn't come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In a similar way, Joseph says to his brothers at the end of this Genesis account, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many people from the famine. And Jesus is saying, I accepted the sovereign hand of God in my life so that many could be ransomed. Folks, that was Joseph's disposition and Jesus' disposition, the hand of God purposing for the salvation of man. Now, none of us have been sold into slavery by our brothers, and none of us have been crucified as Jesus was. However, this morning, many of us, perhaps, have suffered some injustice or betrayal. There are some who mean evil against us, and it's not right, and it's not fair, and it hurts. What do we do in those circumstances? What does Joseph do at the end of Genesis 37? We must know that God is working for our good and his glory, and God's hand is at work even when we don't see it. I'm convinced because of the the extended testimony of Joseph in these later chapters, that at the end of Genesis 37, while his brothers are gloating and his father is grieving, that Joseph is casting his confidence upon a sovereign God and saying, Lord, I don't understand what's going on right now in my life. This is not good. This is bad. I've been betrayed by my own family. I'll never see my father again. I'm a prisoner in a foreign land, yet God's hand is always at work. The back of your notes, I've copied for you a poem. It reads like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I may choose the colors, but he knows what they should be. For he can view the pattern upon the upper side while I see it only on the underside. Sometimes he weaveth sorrow which seemeth strange to me, but I will trust his judgment and work on faithfully. Tis he who fills the shuttle, for he knows what is best, and I shall weave in earnest and leave 
with him the rest. At last, when life has ended, with him I shall abide. Then I may view the pattern upon the other side. Then I shall know the reason why pain with joy entwined was woven in the fabric of life that God for me designed. Folks, this morning you may find yourself at the end of Genesis 37. You don't know what the next chapter will hold, the next many chapters will hold, but can you in your suffering, your injustice, your pain, your betrayal, can you know that the hand of God is orchestrating and coordinating and ordaining and governing the affairs of our life for our good and his glory. Let's pray. God in heaven, this morning we lament and grieve Joseph's circumstances in Genesis 37. Lord, it's not right. It's wrong. It's bad. It's hard. It's hurtful. And Lord, this morning we find ourselves in in many ways as well at the end of Genesis 37. Lord, we can't see forward. We don't know what your plan is, but we trust your hand, your sovereign wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us the disposition of Jesus Christ. Pray not my will, but yours be done. Knowing that you have a purpose and a plan for these things, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.